and welcome back to Searching Inward, a podcast brought to you by Restore Small Groups here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm George, joined with Anna, Seth, and Mr. Scott Real, who's looking fine today. Actually, everyone's looking great today. <laughs> we hope all of you listeners are having a great morning, a great afternoon, a great evening, a great after midnight, <laughs> whenever you might be listening to this. We're just always honored to... Uh, to have you be listening and join us. And we are on this journey of transformation, which is a new book that Scott's written, has yet to be released to the world, but uh, it is written. We've been kind of practicing it in, in small groups. So it's a 36-day contemplative journey to help us understand our personal story and our inner life more fully and compassionately. So it's all about inner transformation for just more joy, living more lightly and freely. And um, we're taking uh, a day. He's written these, it's 36 days. We're taking each of these days and just highlighting and spotlighting uh, some of what's in the book. And today is how to silence your inner critic. Who needs outer critics when we have inner critics? <laughs> or, or the opposite would be true too, right? Uh, who needs inner critics when we have outer critics? Uh, we can all live more free from critics, whether it's coming from ourselves and others. But today we want to talk to you about that. And what we consistently tell ourselves about ourselves is what is most forming us. Mm. And Seth said something as we were uh, talking through preparing for this recording. I want him to kind of lead off with this. But he said the volume, intensity, and relationship you have with your inner critic primarily informs your mental health. That's a hard one to swallow, Seth. Talk to us about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, this this inner critic voice, it sometimes we're aware of it, but I think it's it's often running in the back of our awareness, right? But it is this, this collection of voices from our past, from the, the authoritative voices from the past that I think probably is a stand-in for our real conscience. Um, I don't think they are one and the same. They often get confused for one and the same. But, but yeah, mm. I, I, like you said, I think it's about the intensity, the frequency, the duration of um, the the negativity of this voice that is trying to bring us down in some way um, and and shame us for what we're missing or how we're not keeping up with uh, what we're supposed to be doing or who we're how we're supposed to be behaving in order to keep in in you know intact this version of ourselves that makes us socially acceptable you know that we learn growing up I, I think um, the intensity of this definitely informs like you said our quality of mental health. And uh, our relationship with that, how, how are we in relationship with that? Whether that is, you know, we are befriending that voice and recognizing where it comes from, or it's just inundating us with negativity. Seth, so how, how would you make the distinction between our conscious mind and the inner critic? Like what's the difference between those two? conscience yeah con well yeah specifically our conscience right our ability to know from right and wrong and the inner critic um, that is a good question um, I, I I mean I, I think sometimes it has to do with asking how old is this voice mm. and I think there there is an intuition about um, the age sometimes or how old this voice can feel. I think sometimes it's about that and whether or not that aligns with what it means to be a healthy person that we've learned about today, I think, or not. I, I think it's really tricky, but I, but I think it requires getting quiet and I think it requires 
honing in on is this true is this speaking to the truth of of what's right now or is this speaking from um historical patterns you know that that told me about mm. something about myself that isn't true anymore so a conscious would uh might be something that's more present in the moment to to guide us yeah. forward and and the inner critic maybe something that's coming up from the past some past mm. wound some experience that's, and relationship yeah i like that that's good scott you uh you talk about the inner critic is very shame-based and threatening <laughs> That's one way to know it, huh? Yeah, it's, it's a lot like when Seth says, I've, I've always said it's the loudest voice in my life. Um, it's very intimidating. It screams. It's, it's over, overbearing. But what, uh, struggling with shame most of my life, that narrative, I, I was listening here, that it predicts my future, it projects my future, it manifests itself into my future. It's like there's two voices in my life that are always competing. And one of them is this very cynical, critical voice that's very shame-based, that's been there, and I like what says, it's been there my whole life. And, um, and it still has a very firm place. And then there's this other voice that's very full of grace, kindness, gentleness. Uh, it's interesting that, uh, I don't know if it was a, a sponsor of mine or, or a therapist, but Somebody told me one time that the most, the most important way for me to talk to myself is with gentleness, especially during a critical time. Because um, mm. when criticism, uh, and, and this is interesting, I, I've kind of adapted this to it, but I heard one time that in relationships where there's real true intimacy, where I know that you love me and I share with you my mistakes, my flaws, my weaknesses, I can receive your input as feedback. It's very, very helpful. But if I mm. do not have a safe, intimate relationship with you, then it's going to be received as criticism. And I found that that applies then to myself. If I'm in a good place with Christ and myself, and I'm in a good relationship with me, then I can talk about these areas of my life that need improvement. But when I'm not in a good place, I'm very, it's, it's a harsh voice and it's received as criticism. And, and those are always going to be triggers for us to turn to different ways to, as Brene Brown says, we're going to, we're going to want to numb that voice out in some way. Would you say one helping us, bring us forward? Oh, yeah. And yeah. one is pulling us back maybe into the past in some way that's hindering or, or holding us back in some way. That's where I've, so, uh, yeah, that's where I've used a STAR acronym lately that, you know, stop those, stop that narrative. Mm -hmm. Look at the trajectory that it's going to take me. Change my altitude, climb up to, and then redirect and, and respond mm -hmm. differently. Um, but that takes great concentration and great consistency, as Dr. Leaf says. And um, mm. it's, it's not easy. It's hard work. Yeah. Anna, our thoughts influence our behavior. Talk to us a little about that. Yeah, I just building on what what Scott said. So often our thoughts are um, not a part of our like conscious processing, right? You know, our brain automates mm -hmm. so much of what it does, and a lot of times that narrative is also automated, right? And and it's mm -hmm. it can be maybe very negative or shame based, and also very subconscious. And so, you know, when we have those 
narratives running about who maybe we've been told that we are, or maybe circumstances have reinforced in um, an unhealthy or negative way that just kind of runs on autopilot in our, in our brain, but our, our thoughts do inform our behaviors, right? And so it takes great effort and intentionality to um, really bring what we're thinking into the conscious realm, right? And not be mm-hmm. running on autopilot and to be consciously tuned in and aware to like, what is the narrative that's running in my head right now? Is it critical or is it positive? Because um, depending on which of those two it is at any given moment, that is going to directly affect my behavior, right? We we live out what we believe and we believe what we think. And often our thoughts are um, are not even a part of our conscious will. So making the effort to um, engage in mindfulness and recognizing, okay, what's the narrative that's running right now in my head? Is it taking me where I want to go? and affirming who I want to become, even if I'm not there yet, is it propelling me towards something greater or is it drawing me down into something less than what I desire to be? Now, sometimes uh, naming or reframing the woodenness of our past is a necessary part of healing. Mm-hmm. I, I guess what, I'm, what, I, what I want you guys to help us understand is it's not that just hearing something from our past, some woundedness from our past is, you know, something that we we should ignore. It's something that we should actually process because it's telling us something that might be helpful in us going forward. But that's not the primary voice that we want to be listened to. We want to be aware of it and know how to respond to it, right? Right. And I think our 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 inner critic, our inner narrative is often informed by wounds, traumas, experiences that we've had. And so when you bring that into like the conscious realm and you're mindful of it, like really digging in to find out, okay, where where does this message come from? Like how how is it that I'm even like receiving this message? What are the events or the circumstances that have led me to adopt or develop this negative belief about myself or circumstances? Um, and, and being able to name that and recognize what is the root of it. And so kind of with what Seth had said, like, is, the, is this actually something from the past or is this still currently true? Like, I mean, so, mm. so many times, like we allow our current situations to be informed by past situations that really are no longer even valid, right? But it's just the narrative that runs under the conscious level. So yeah, understanding where our narrative comes from, how um, that inner critic has been informed through our our circumstances can help us to begin to change the narrative. And how I'm going to relate to that Mm -hmm. voice. Yeah. Is it going to be helpful in me understanding something about my woundedness that I can move forward? Or is it something that's just keeping me in bondage or hold me back in some way? Yeah. Can, I, Scott, can I jump in here real fast? Yeah, yeah, please do. Um, I'm going to, I'm not remembering the uh, the actual percentage here, but there there have been plenty of studies shown in the last few years that, that say having, gaining the ability to actually name the emotion you're experiencing is what informs your ability to emotionally regulate. You know, I think naming Mm -hmm. is huge. There's that, there's that statement, name it to tame it, right? That is a large part of how we work, I think, with our, with our emotions, but also this inner critic. And I wanted to drop the, the first, maybe it's not the first, but a quote for 
uh, for us all because I, I just think this is a, a beautiful way of understanding this. It's it's kind of it's looking at um, past stories f- through the lens of cultivating what's called a coherent narrative. Are you all familiar with that? Share it. Yeah. It, it, so it's it's from uh, child psychologist Dan Siegel who talks about. Um, well, let me just quote this. He says, um, "History." is not destiny when it comes to attachment. Um, He says Mm. the single best predictor for how well a parent is able to provide secure attachment to their children is not whether they had it with their parents. It's whether or not they've reflected on their attachment experiences growing up with those caregivers and made sense of those experiences. Mm. That's what it means to build a coherent narrative. Is this are my stories? Am I have I processed through them? Have I made sense mm-hmm. of them? Have I realized my parents did the best they could with what they had, but they had their own stuff as well. That was what they were parenting from, and that's how you build a coherent story with the narratives. Um, and I think we can do that as well with our own voices that are they're still running the scripts of negativity for us. Yeah, love that. So Scott, in the book, you said um, the inner critic reminds us of our frailty and fault. And we believe others perceive us as failures, so we personify the inner critic. So that, that that's one of not even being conscious of what it is we're personifying. But but you went on to say, no matter how we perform, it likes to tell us what we should have done, not allowing us to enjoy any success or any progress in life. It makes us feel deeply inadequate. Yeah. So this inner critic is the one that makes us feel the worst and the most inadequate. Yeah, I've always said that I, I, we can never outperform our negative self-image, our negative self-belief. Mm. And, as, you know, I see so many, as I have struggled in my life with a performance-based lifestyle and belief system that my paradigm is is skewed towards, you know, I'm not good enough and this is going to make me, you know, at any time now, you're going to discover that I'm just not enough. I'm, I'm inadequate. And so that, to personify it, it, it becomes my reality. And the struggle with that. But the good news of that for me is that it's kind of like what Anna was saying earlier that, and Seth, that if if we can name it, we can begin to, to transform it. Richard Orr says that unless it is named, unless it is owned, it cannot be redeemed. So that's one of the new questions in this book that I've been using in our groups and we've been piloting is, how do you see a redemptive life story unfolding for you? What is the, what is the message? What is the new redemptive narrative? And um, I'm beginning to see myself or see ourselves uh, the way that Christ does. Um, I don't know if it's possible to fully be redeemed uh, without that environment of and and where do we experience Christ? It, I'm, I'm pointing to where we do our groups, in these small groups, where I I can experience a new secure attachment from these fellow travelers, and they can help me begin to see myself differently than what my shame-based narrative has been telling me. And that, mm. to me, is the path of becoming. It's interesting you mention performance. Because sometimes the inner critic is coming from this place of woundedness from the past. But something my own heart's been growing in more and more of is the people that I look up to the most in my life, like the mentors that I have. I found something in my heart recently, 
like I was, I had this voice of an inner critic because I was not actually living up to all the people that I admired the most, you know, because they, they have certain gifts and skills. And as I was kind of processing it, like there's this inner critic, like I'm always falling short, like, because I was measuring my own progress or my own capacity or skill or limits based on someone else's. And so sometimes it could be, you know, we're really looking up to someone or we're, we're looking forward to some kind of progress or perhaps it's the way someone else has made progress faster than we did. And so that can be an inner critic too, right? Well, and, and shame to me can scar us mentally and traumatically. This is mm-hmm. a funny story, but it wasn't funny for me and it really affected my life. But public speaking was terrifying for me. And uh, it was in, it was my senior year in college, and um, I had to give a report to the class. You had, to, you had to get up in front of the class and make a public presentation on the report. And mine was on, the word is atrophy. Mm-hmm. But at that time, <laughs> I pronounced it atrophy. <laughs> and so I make my presentation, and I'm nervous as can be, and somebody raises their hand and asks a question, and I go, Scott, what kind of trophy did you win? And everybody mm. just starts laughing and laughing at me. Mm. And um, and then the professor goes, Scott, it's pronounced atrophy. And I'm telling you, it scarred me mm. for wow. a long time. It was It's a funny story now, but it was not funny. Mm. And it's how it implicated my life for a long time. <laughs> wow. So memories, wow, I, memories of those scars of where in our lives we have been shamed. Mm-hmm. They make a very, they make a very powerful narrative, imprinted critical narrative. Okay, well, let's talk about silencing the inner critic for a moment. How do we do that? And in the book, you talk about priming our thoughts with new thoughts. And you quote Doctor Dispenza in there: "If we want to change some aspect of our reality, we have to think, feel, and act in new ways." Um, we have to be different in terms of our responses to experiences. We have to become someone mm. else. Mm. Help us understand that. Anna, maybe you could start. Um, what is the meaning of we have to become someone else? Well, I think that is something we definitely want to clarify. Like we want mm. to become someone else, but that someone else is actually the person that we truly are. So we're not trying to model ourselves after anyone else, Right. Every mm-hmm. every human is uniquely created with different gifts, different strengths and weaknesses. And so becoming someone else is really becoming coming home to who we truly are. Um, and so that's laying down those negative narratives, like really um, understanding where they come from, understanding who it is that we can see. Um, like having that that vision of, of who it is that we truly want to become or who we truly are and living consciously towards that so that our thoughts are going to drive our behaviors so that our behaviors uh, in turn reinforce who that person is that we are becoming. But the person that we're becoming is truly just ourselves. It's not, it's not anybody else. I think often with the baggage, the dysfunctions that we've developed throughout life um, as coping mechanisms, they begin to weigh us down and um, they're not really a part of who we truly are. 
Um, and so when we begin to learn to lay those things down that, um, that hinder us from being fully present to life uh, in the ways that we were designed to. Um, and again, it's going to look different from everybody. Everybody has different strengths. Everybody has different weaknesses. We're not looking uh, for perfection. We're just looking for laying down what's not truly who we are and what doesn't serve us well anymore because it's limiting. It's a limiting thought or a limiting behavior. Mm -hmm. Becoming someone else is letting go of the voice that is shaming us. Yeah. Because that's not who we are. It's like mm -hmm. Scott. Yeah, he made a mistake, but he's not a mistake. And, we, you know, we've all been had that experience of, of like, you know, mispronouncing a word or something and being corrected. But for Scott, it would be like, actually, obviously, Scott, your life has needed to be able to be a voice to speak to, to people and how that's who you truly are. But just how in that moment, how that could have maybe even stopped you from moving forward in your life's work. Yeah. If he hadn't laid that voice down, <laughs> where would we be today? Right? Because we need yep. all the things that your brave voice has shared with us to enrich our lives and help us heal and grow. Seth, you have a way of uh, understanding this inner critic. You talk about it as the inner observer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What, yeah. Um, How's that a more healthy way to think about it? Yeah, I, I'm grateful that Scott shared that story because it reminded me of a, a memory that I had this morning, which I don't have access to much memory from childhood. So when there's one that comes up for me, I'm like, oh, oh grab it, hold it, you know, give mm -hmm. it here. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I was I was outside uh, this morning, uh, just in meditation, and I have I have this thing about me that kind of is paradoxical that I. I really have this deep need to feel seen and I also don't want to be seen because <laughs> uh, it feels, you know, oh, I'm exposed, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and so, I mean, it's took, it took me, it took me a while to like be, even by my family to be seen. It's, I felt like I was getting caught. I'm, I'm meditating. Look, you can see him, you know, it just felt like, so anyway, one of my, I heard somebody, I didn't, wasn't sure who it was coming out the door and there was a, a moment of like, I'm getting in trouble. What, what am I, this is a thing for me from the past of like, I'm getting in trouble from somewhere. This is a, so there was an inner critic voice of like, you're doing something wrong. This isn't okay. Mm. And I, the memory that came into mind was, and I checked in with my twin brother earlier to confirm this because he remembers it very clearly that there was some moment we were at, at our friend's house and I had pushed in this brand new DVD, or sorry, it was actually a VHS player, uh, the the VHS tape, VHS, yeah, yeah, into the D, into the player. I don't even know how to use this language correctly anymore. It's so old, um, and I pushed it too far, and it fell back behind the TV, and it was so like Scott said, my you know my it was so traumatizing i would say their response to this experience and how sensitive i was of a kid that these stories mm -hmm. formed out of that experience and to this day that's part of one of the scripts that run for me where i'm worried about getting caught by something i've not really ever i'm not even doing anything wrong you know mm -hmm. um so mm. to translate that uh to the question you asked me about uh, inner observer I, I like to think of, and I do think this takes time and it takes practice, but I, I like to think of there's an ability to turn the inner critic like a spy. 
into the inner observer. So I think this is much less about rejecting anything and more under springing understanding to the fact that at some point in time, this voice was very important for our protection and our being accepted in the environments that we grew up in in, in childhood. Um, this, you know, this critic, this inner critic shaped who I was to make my way in the world in a safe way, in a safe manner. So yeah, but but the thing is, is like we were talking about, this voice also keeps intact our small persona self. And so to be anything more than that, we have to work with this. And I think this is largely about, for me in the moment, what I what I had to do was recognize, like we said at the very beginning of this conversation, this is old. And I thankfully that memory was especially helpful in reinforcing that idea for me that this voice isn't, I don't need, thank you for trying to protect me, but I don't need that right now. This is not helpful. In fact, this is actually now hindering. And it's a way of like, bringing compassion and bringing understanding and mm-hmm. and and presence to um, help it change sides. And mm-hmm. I think the idea is that when you um, bring clarity to that voice, when you bring awareness to it and presence and love for what it's trying to offer you still, it's like, oh, I'm now disavowed and I'll take, I'll come be with you and help you actually be more present and this isn't a thing I need anymore. Yeah. Wow. That's... Thank you for sharing that. I mean, that is just beautiful. So being able to be compassionate to that person that feels insecure or that feels inadequate at the moment is a far more helpful way to to come forward with more health and and more Mm well-being. So that's where being an observer can certainly help. And maybe we observe that we're not that inadequate person. Because um, that's what it sounds like you experienced both Scott, you had and Seth that, you know, being able to understand where it was coming from, to give some compassion and love and grace to that experience and to yourself and perhaps even to others mm-hmm. yeah, was the pathway forward. Yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful way to live. Scott, you say um, we prime thoughts that lead to a new self. So how how are you thinking differently about that person that, you know? Gave that speech and messed up that word. How do you think about it differently today that's priming thoughts to to do things courageously and boldly like you you speak to lots of people now? I think that um, we would be misleading people and say it, it, it takes tremendous courage to be a human being. Tremendous mm-hmm. courage. Um, I remember when I started this path 25 years ago for this new career, this this new place in my life. And I knew that it was inevitable that I was going to, have to do public speaking, which was which was at that time my greatest private fear. I mean, I if I knew I had to even get up at a meeting and say, hi, I'm Scott, I wouldn't be able to sleep for two or three <laughs> nights ahead of time. I mean, I was terrified, petrified, because I had been wounded so deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it goes further back, I, I had witnessed my father, who was a very shy man, have to give a little public talk one time, and he struggled so bad. And I, that's like etched in my memory. I felt such pain for my dad. And uh, and so I got a friend of mine and, who was a speech teacher, and she worked with me on public speaking. And uh, mm. and they taught me to not be afraid of that, that negative energy, but to actually embrace it and use it. And uh, so... It really comes down to 
I, I love this word, and you used it, George, but it's grace. Um, I had to extend myself grace, take the risk to, to be vulnerable. Um, growth requires risk and, uh, and vulnerability. And, and that's why in our groups, every time a person comes in a group and they, and they have the courage to share these parts of their lives that are so deeply wounded, that courage and that, that ability to do that and then, for, then to receive the grace of other people, they begin to see themselves differently. And, they, and it's not that we, our past changes, but we remember our past differently. It does no longer define my present. And, mm. and that is the greatest, to me, that's the path of transformation of becoming a new person, uh, a better version mm. of myself. And so, and I don't care if what age you are, it's never too late to embark on that on that path. So that sounds like a way to silence the inner critic is to remember the past in a completely new way. Well, Rutledge yeah. says in his book on fear that fear gains its strength from our own, from our retreat. Mm. It gains its strength mm-hmm. from our retreat, but it diminishes as we step into it. And so um, face facing these things and dealing with them and growing through them is those little private victories for the, for the beholder is so significant. Well, speaking of courage, I love how you ended this day. And Seth, if you could help us, because you did a little research on the oyster, <laughs> which was <laughs> just a wonderful way to end this. Um, yeah. Um, well, how's the oyster relate to us <laughs> and our courage? To, <laughs> I don't know. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> no I, I think what Scott was saying beautifully leads into this about uh, how growth requires risk and vulnerability. At the end of this chapter, Scott talks about the oyster that it, uh, how it takes in a grain of sand and it turns it into a beautiful pearl. And when I looked up, I looked up the process and what that what what actually goes on in this experience. And it's the quote from there, and it says, "If a grain of sand enters the oyster's shell, he loses his life of comfort," mm-hmm. which I just thought was you know a really an, an analogous to uh, again vulnerability and risk now are required if I want to become anything more than the version of me I've settled for until this point. You know, that is, that is now long, no longer working for me. And the one that the inner critic reinforces and tries to keep intact for, for me, you know. But this is, I think, what, what, it, what it means to not reject the inner critic, but to work with it. Uh, it said uh, in that same article that it's what the oyster does with the irritant that creates the pearl. So it's what we do with our story. Like you said, it's how we um, remember the story in a different way that changes uh, who we are today. And that that is what, going back to what I mentioned earlier, that's what it means to build a coherent narrative. We allow the wounds and the painful parts of our story no longer to be uh, how we keep protecting ourselves from defending against that. But now, like the oyster, we allow that piece of sand or that painful part of our story to be how we view it, to be turned into you know, our gift and our strength and a, and a pearl. And uh, just to clarify, I, I do think it aligns really well as well. The idea that this takes at least a year or two before the sand is able to be turned into a pearl. And I think real change is is likely like that. You know, it, it's, it takes at least that long before. It's like the gym, right? You don't really see immediate results like we all hope for. But yeah, that's that's the uh, 
that's the experience or that the the story of the the pearl with the mollusk is really beautiful. Well, friends, we hope that that encourages you. The surprise at the end of this, if you thought silencing the inner critic was to destroy it, <laughs> um, the the answer is actually to befriend it, to open to where it's coming from. Perhaps it's reminding you of some past experience. And although every one of us is on a different path, we are all traveling the same human journey, which is to befriend our inner critic and discover that there's a beautiful pearl that can be birthed out of our lives as a result of observing it and working with it. But visit us at restoresmallgroups.org to learn more about online and in-person groups you can join. We'd love to journey with you. So if we could help, uh, please look us up online. But over every mountain, there is a path and the future rewards those who discover it and press on. So stay on the path and take care of yourself. .org to learn more about on person in <laughs> George what's your inner critic saying right now <laughs> real time work Shame. real time work I'm right inadequate. now <laughs> welcome it embrace it oh my god <laughs> all right how how old is that voice <laughs> <laughs> it's very old. Seven, eight. <laughs>